0: Today's scripture reading will be from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to chapter 4, verse 7. If you are using the Pew Bible, we will be at page 914 and 915. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all in you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring as according to promise. Galatians chapter 4 verse 1 I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God set forth his son
1: Caroline, thanks for reading scripture for us. And friends, let's join our hearts in prayer as we prepare to hear from God. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you indeed for how you are God who saves. Thank you for bringing us together through Christ into one family. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we come to your word. Help us to understand your truth. Help us to live it out. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, if you ask me who I am, I could just tell you my name, or I could tell you a story. I'm a third-generation Singaporean whose paternal grandfather was a Teochew laborer who migrated here from southern China. He lived and worked around the Singapore River. My maternal grandfather was a Cantonese tailor with a shop in Chinatown. My parents were post-war baby boomers, and they were childhood friends, so they knew each other from when they were young. And I'm a child of the 70s, you know, arguably the best era in music, but you know, that's another story. Uh, and I spent my teenage years hanging around uh, shopping centres along Orchard Road. You know, and two life-changing events happened during my university days. I, be, I became a Christian, and I met my wife for the first time. And before serving as a pastor, I was a journalist for about eight years. So, so that, that, in a nutshell, is my story. And I'm sure you all have stories too of your own, stories of how you came to be. You know, and all of our individual stories, they shape our identities and they make us who we are. Uh, in a similar way, we, what brings us together is a shared story, uh, a common narrative of who we are, of how we came to be, and of where we are going. So we're going to spend some time today thinking about this common narrative that really unites us and makes us one people. So this book is very helpful. So sorry, commercial break. <laughs> this book is really helpful to think about how we as God's people display this beauty of the gospel. So Free for the person who raises their hand. The gospel, how the church portrays the beauty of Christ by Ray Ortland. So, if you'd like to read it, just put up your hand. Give it to you free. No one? Ah, there's one there. Okay, great. Thanks, Yangtek. Yep. So, really helpful book. If you want more copies, they're available downstairs at the book table. So, how do we reunite a divided church? Well, Paul reminds us in this passage of the gospel and the common identity, that common narrative or story that the gospel gives us. And he does this for the Galatians. Why? Because false teachers were promoting a a wrong gospel of faith plus works, as we've heard over the past number of weeks. And these false teachers claimed uh, that in addition to believing in Jesus, Gentiles, non-Jews, Gentiles like us, also needed to be circumcised. In obedience to the old covenant law to be saved. And in other words, they were they were saying to to these Galatian churches, Jesus is not enough, you need to become a Jew as well, in order to be fully integrated into God's people. Well, a wrong gospel leads to a wrong identity. The false teachers believed that only circumcised Jews were Abraham's offspring and God's children. Therefore, unless the Gentiles were also circumcised and kept the Old Testament law, they did not belong to God's family. And at best, Gentiles were second class in the church. This false teaching divided the church. Uh, It separated Jews from Gentiles. as, As we saw, it caused Peter and other Jews to stop eating with their Gentile brothers. You know, friends, as, as when we get the gospel wrong, we lose sight of our shared identity in Christ. And what happens? We, we start drawing lines, all kinds of lines uh, between us, you know, lines that separate younger from older, lines that separate singles and marrieds, lines that separate uh, local from international. Lines that separate long-time church members from newer church members. You know, all kinds of lines. I mean, this, this is not exhaustive, obviously. Many different lines that separate us if we forget our shared identity in Christ. You know, beloved, a wrong gospel tears the church apart. So, God, so Paul makes the gospel clear in Galatians. And the gospel is not faith plus works, but faith alone in Christ alone. So we may have different individual stories, but in Christ, we all have a part in this bigger story, the good news of what Jesus has done to save sinners. Well, we may not encounter Judaizers telling us to be circumcised, but we face false gospels promising us identity and significance without Jesus. You know, the world plays to our pride encouraging us to define ourselves by our abilities and accomplishments, by our school or work careers, by our success and wealth, by our ethnicity, by our sexuality, and so on. We carefully curate our identities on social media to ensure we always present the best version of ourselves to the world. We live amid a growing trend of expressive individualism which tells us to look inwards, to find ourselves because our identity is all about being true to our feelings and our preferences. You know, but think about this. If, if you have your truth and I have my truth, then we have no truth to truly unite us. You know, This constant search for the real me is exhausting. and The more we try to find ourselves by looking within ourselves, the the more guilty, the more anxious, the more unworthy we feel. In fact, I'm not just saying these things, but this came out in a survey of millennials. Were they assured because they were trying to find themselves, but actually not. They were full of anxiety, guilt, and a sense of being imposters the good news of the gospel is that the gospel doesn't call us to work for or to search for an an identity. Instead, the gospel gives us a new identity and invites us to rest in this new identity. And this passage tells us two key truths about who we are in Christ. Number one, Jesus unites us all as God's children. And number two, Jesus sets us free to be adopted as God's children, and those are the two big points that we'll look at this morning. So number one, Jesus unites us all as God's children, looking at verses 26 to 29 of chapter 3. Last week, we heard about how the law is our guardian, a disciplinarian that tells us what to do and what not to do, and punishes us when we fail. Uh, we heard about how the law cannot give life, but it leads us to faith in Christ. That's the point of the law. Now, the law is temporary for the time until Christ comes. And Paul mentions that in verse 25, just before our passage. He says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So Jesus has come and He has come to free us from the demands of the law. He saves us through His righteous life, His sacrificial death and His triumphant. Resurrection, And by believing in Jesus, we are justified or declared righteous by God. And not only so, Paul tells us here in our passage, we also become God's beloved sons. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You know, faith, faith has come, faith in Christ has come, so we're no longer young children needing a garden, but we've grown up to trust in Christ, and therefore we, uh, we come into our sonship under Christ. And so Paul here, right in verse 26, he assures Gentile Christians that they belong, that they really belong. You know, we are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. The Gentiles are not second-class Gentiles do not need to be circumcised because it's not by circumcision or by works of the law, but Paul says you are all sons of God through faith, through faith, by faith alone in Christ alone. That's how we belong. It's so refreshing to hear this news, right? We belong not because we've earned it, we belong not because we are good, but we belong because Christ is good. We are united to Christ by faith. Right? This is the language that Paul uses here in verse 26. This is what it means to be in Christ. You know, that, that's a very common phrase used by Paul across all of his letters. You know, in Christ. To be in Christ means to be united to Him by faith. You know, we receive the gift of salvation in Christ, but even more than that, we receive the giver Himself, Jesus Union with Christ is really the heart of the gospel. Paul describes this union with Christ in a different way in verse 27. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, like you you would a piece of clothing. You wear Jesus. That's the image that Paul uses. We are clothed with Christ. You know, he, he takes away our filthy rags, and he covers us with himself, with the beautiful, spotless garment of his righteousness. You now this happens at our conversion. So like Paul links it to you know he says, "As many of you as were baptized into Christ, you know, to be baptized into Christ is just a, a shorthand way of saying at your conversion, when you trusted in Jesus, when you were turned from darkness to light." That's when you put on Christ. You were joined to Him by faith. You know, baptism doesn't save us, but baptism is a sign that we've been united to the Son of God, united with Christ and united with His body, the Church. So baptism follows faith in Jesus and it is for believers only. It's for those of us who've put on Christ. So if you have believed in Jesus, but you have not yet been baptised, can I encourage you to be baptised, to identify yourself with Jesus, to say, yes, I've died with Him and I've raised with Him to new life. I encourage you to do that. If if you'd like to find out more about baptism, come talk to one of the elders, come talk to me after the service. We'd be happy to point you to our Church Matters class uh, and and tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus in obedience in baptism. So why is union with Christ so precious? You know, why does Paul talk about being in Christ so much in his letters? Now, as I mentioned earlier, I was a journalist for about eight years and during my time as a journalist, I had the opportunity to cover some uh, political trips. So I, I went on some trips with certain political leaders. You know, so we, we show up at a, at, in a different country and you know, we, we always wanted to be part of the retinue of that political leader because, you know, once you join with them, you know, you can skip all the traffic lights, <laughs> you know, you don't have to be stuck in traffic, you can follow their convoy, right, and it kind of gets you to where you need to be really, really quickly, right? So you enjoy all the benefits of travelling with these VIPs, right? Doors open to you, traffic stops, right? Basically, you just get where you need to go very, very fast. And, and that's, I think, a picture of what it means to be in Christ, right? To be able to say, I'm with Him, Right. How, do, how, do I, how do I get access to places I'm with Him? You know, how do I get things done I'm with Him? You know, why, do, why, do, why, why should we be significant? Because I'm with Him. Right. And that's, that's exactly the benefit of being in Christ. All we have is Christ and all that He has is ours because we're in Him. You know, in Christ, all the benefits of His righteousness All the benefits of His relationship to His Father belong to us. So we are justified in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are glorified in Christ. We are reconciled in Christ. You know, it is such a precious doctrine. The Gospel is not just about justification, but the Gospel is about more than that, right? It's about being in Christ, and all these benefits come to us. That's what it means to be a son of God. Therefore, if we are united to the Son, we become sons of God. In Christ, who is the promised son of Abraham, we become sons of Abraham because we belong to the true son of Abraham. And this is why our shared story goes back all the way to the beginning of the Bible. To the book of genesis abraham's story is our story you know, we don't just read it in scripture and say great you know that was true i'm so thankful but but we read it as this is my story this is this, this is my people right? because i am in the true son of abraham i'm in jesus and so this becomes my story this becomes our shared story through jesus christ and because jesus is the heir of all things we become fellow heirs with Him. We are sons in the Son. And this is true for all. Notice how Paul uses that word in verse 26, all. All who are in Christ, regardless of who we are, regardless of where we come from, regardless of our race, language. Jesus gives us a new identity as sons you may be wondering, especially if you're a, a, a lady you're wondering why does he talk about sons so much? What happened to the daughters? Well, it's a particular image that Paul is using in this passage right? in, in New Testament times, only sons receive the inheritance. You know, therefore Paul keeps using the masculine not because he's excluding women right because later on he'll say there's neither male nor female right so he's not excluding women, but Paul is specifically using the masculine in this verse to emphasize the inheritance that we have because he knows in that culture, sons receive the inheritance. Therefore, he calls all of us sons. Male and female, you are all sons. Right? It's, a bit, it's a bit like how Paul calls the, bride, the church the bride of Christ. He wondering a male, I'm, I'm the bride. <laughs> right? but, but, but that's the image, right? That's the image that Paul uses to... to, to Communicate the intimacy between Jesus and His people. Here he emphasizes the inheritance that we have. So we are all sons. We have the legal right to inherit. And we shall inherit every spiritual blessing. God has promised His children: forgiveness, eternal life, joy, peace, and indeed, the new creation itself. That's our inheritance, right the meek shall inherit the earth. That's our inheritance as sons. You know, beloved, we tend to understand our identity in rather individualistic ways. So we may be hearing this passage and going, yeah, great, I'm a child of God, right? Great, I'm, I'm a son or I'm a, I'm a daughter, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, all, all that is true. You know, In Christ, we, I am a child of God, yet... Paul's emphasis in this passage is not the individual, but the shared identity of God's people. So if you walk away thinking, great, I'm a child of God, that's not enough. You have to walk away thinking, we in Christ are children of God. That's primary to what Paul is communicating to us in this passage. Remember, he's, he's addressing a divided church. There's you know, it's no use telling a divided church about their individual identity as individual Christians, but you want to communicate to a divided church their shared identity in Christ because that's how you bring a divided church together. And that's what Paul wants us to hear from this passage. Not only are we individually a child of God, but together. Together. We are God's children. And that makes us Siblings. Brothers and sisters of the same spiritual family. So so we need to walk away from here this morning thinking, this person is my brother. This person is my sister. I really should love them because they're family members. Jesus has brought us together as brothers and sisters and he has broken down the dividing walls of race, rank, and sex, right? verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah, the gospel isn't individualistic. Jesus saves us as individual persons, but he saves us into a community. It's not just about me and my relationship with Jesus, it's about me It's about you and your relationship with Jesus. About our relationship with Jesus together. That's biblical Christianity, because Jesus saves us into a community. The gospel creates the church. So why does why does GBC exist? Yes, we have founders, etc., etc. We have church planters, but ultimately we exist because we've been created by the gospel, not through human efforts. By the gospel. And that is what sustains and unites us as well, the gospel. By believing in Jesus, we are baptised into Christ's body, the church. So we can't live our Christian lives on our own as individuals. We live it together in community. And and therefore, we, we join a local church to live out this spiritual reality. We don't just belong to the universal church in the abstract but we live out that truth by practically loving and serving our brothers and sisters in a local church. That's how we display that we belong to the universal church. And we walk with one another through the messiness of life, through illness, through bereavement, through joy, through sorrow. We bear one another's burdens. As, Paul's, as, as John says in 1 John 3, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? So no use just saying, I love the church in abstract ways, but we have to display that love by actually loving in deed and in truth. And that happens in the context of this gathering of God's people if you are here at GBC. And this is what it means to be a member of a church. It's not administrative. It's not so you can vote at meetings. To be a member of a church is to love and serve brothers and sisters. That's what it means to be a member. You know, some of us may have been ostracized or even disowned by our biological families because we follow Jesus. And the, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves us into a new family, Right. Jesus promises in, in the Gospels right, that if, if you've given up families, I will give you brothers and sisters and mothers and houses and lands. Right. That, that's what it means to be saved into a family. That even though our biological families may have cast us aside, but we have a new family. And arguably, this new family is even more precious and significant. This new family will endure into eternity. This is our new spiritual family. And this kind of community is only possible by God's grace. And we live in a fractured world that divides along race, rank, and sex. Races discriminate against one another. Ethnicities fight one another. The rich and powerful look down on the poorer and weaker, you know, male chauvinism clashes with feminism, but the gospel overcomes such divisions. Yeah, a, a word of caution as we think about these verses. Right, when, when Paul says there's neither male, uh, there's neither uh, Jew nor Gent- Greek, uh, slave nor free, male nor female, you know, he's he's not saying that uh, the gospel completely wipes out any racial, social, or sexual distinctions. You know, Scripture continues to address Jews and Gentiles. Scripture continues to instruct employers and employees how to fulfill their respective responsibilities. It also exhorts men and women specifically, for example, how they ought to live as husbands and wives. So Scripture doesn't obliterate any of these distinctions. And yeah, this, this is important to bear in mind, especially given the influence of gender ideology that says we should do away with the categories of male and female, that they're merely social constructs. But, but these distinctions are still there. Right? Scripture doesn't say these distinctions no longer exist. The distinctions of race, rank, and sex still exist, but what Paul is saying is that even though they still exist, they are no longer barriers to fellowship they do not divide us. These distinctions are there, but they do not divide us because Jesus creates a fundamental oneness centred in Him. And I would put it to us that instead of hindering our unity, our diversity actually displays God's wisdom in bringing many people together as one. This is why we sing in parts, right? You realize, you know, like we sung the doxology just now, you know, why not just sing the melody? You know, why not just everyone sing the melody all the time? I mean, that, that works. But why do we sing in parts? Because we understand how when diverse voices come together and they blend well, the, the result is far richer than simply singing the melody. Right? There's a certain richness of singing in parts. And and that's exactly what the church should be. Not homogeneity, not uniformity, but unity amid diversity. And, And this shows the wisdom of God in bringing many people together, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female. God brings us all together as one and our diversity displays God's glory. God is like the brilliant composer of a beautiful symphony that perfectly harmonises the tones and timbres of an orchestra's instrument. Now, I don't think we'd like to listen to a symphony if it was just one instrument playing one melody. Right? The reason why we enjoy symphonies is because of their diverse voices coming together beautifully as one. And this is why as a church, we encourage sort of people crossing lines, right? We encourage people to cross these social lines to, to build relationships with those of us who are different from us. Right? We, we, we want to encourage the younger to get to know the older. We want to encourage teens to get to know people who are older than them and for people older to get to know the teens and the youth and the children. Uh, we, want, we want to encourage people to get to know one another across cultural backgrounds, across ethnicities, across nationalities. Why? Because we believe that this displays the richness of the gospel. This, this is the reason why we, do, we, we don't encourage a lot of demographic-specific ministries. I think demographic-specific ministries have their place, but they can also overwhelm the importance of diversity and how we want to come together as one, although we're different. And the more we do that, the more we talk to someone who's not like us, the more we display the wisdom of God in bringing many different people together as one. So what does that mean? So don't just hang out with your friends. Don't just hang out with people that you are comfortable with or you know for a really long time. Right? Make the effort, all of us, make the effort when we go downstairs later on, make the effort to talk to someone who's not like you. Make the effort to talk to someone who's new. Or if you're new, you know, must up the courage and talk to someone else. Right? It can be a bit intimidating But let's all try to do that. Let's all try to do that together. To talk with someone whom we've never met. Talk with someone who's different. Try to cut across these social lines. Why? Because the gospel has opened the way for us to do so. We are all equal in Christ. So let not man separate what God has joined together. And you see why Paul opposes the false gospel here in Galatians. Right, because this, this false gospel, it divided God's people, it divided Jews from Gentiles, and we too should oppose anything that divides people in these ways. We should, put, we should oppose any racism, any chauvinism, any prejudice, pride, or self-righteousness that splits the church. I think this is time for some honest, humble self examination. To consider our own hearts, to consider our ways, and to think about how is God calling us to repent of any divisive attitudes and actions? Are we harboring prejudices in our hearts against a brother or sister? How is God calling us to repent of gossip, of discrimination? of anger, unforgiveness, of a complaining spirit. And you think, how are we strengthening the unity of the church? I think think this passage rebukes me, rebukes my self-centeredness. This passage rebukes my selfishness. This passage rebukes my inclination to make church all about me. My preferences, my convenience, my comfort... My desires, my opinions. You know, this, this passage challenges me to move out of myself to serve others. Right? And I think this is the difference between a consumer and a family member. Right? I mean, we, we, we go through this in our household all the time. You know, we tell our children, hey, you are part of this family, so you pull your weight, right? you, you help out in the family, you're not hotel guests. Right. There's no room service here. Right. You, you pull your weight because this, that's the difference between being a consumer and a family member. Consumers expect to be served. When they show up, family members roll up their sleeves and say, how can I help? Uh, let me give you an example of that. You know, at once, you know, at, at some, some time ago, when, when our kids were younger, i you will know, I'll be involved in the services and sometimes Claire would be busy uh, maybe at Sunday school doing something else. So, so, so we would wonder, gosh, we have two young kids. Who's going to keep an eye on them during the service? You know, they, they might act up and disturb people. But I was so encouraging that, you know, we had people in the church, instead of just talking about, oh, this, your kids are really noisy, what did they do? They, they came and sat with our kids, right, and just helped us care for our kids. And I think that's a really good example of a family that pulls together. When you see a need, you, know, you don't just talk about it from a distance, but, but you come and say, how can I help? How can I come alongside parents? How can I come alongside others, one another, to, to really help and right? to make this family, family? Right? That's, just, that's just a small example, but I think this is, these are ways in which God is calling us to live our life as family, not as consumers of church services, but as brothers and sisters who help one another live as one in Christ. So number two, Jesus sets us free be adopted as God's children. Okay, verses, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Well, in, this, in these verses, Paul again recaps this, the gospel story of how Jesus has transformed us from who we once were to who we are now. So Paul has contrasted being under the law to living by faith in Christ. And then he expands on this illustration of the law as our guardian here in these verses, Paul compares our experience under the law to that of a young heir awaiting his inheritance. Well, in, in New Testament times, the wealthy would entrust their heir and their estate over to the care of guardians and managers. So while the heir is young, he has yet to come into his inheritance. So although he technically owns everything, since he will eventually inherit the family fortune, the heir has no legal or property rights, for the time being. So Paul says, when this heir is young, he is no different from a slave. He has no rights. Instead, he has a guardian, keeping him under strict discipline, and a trustee will manage his wealth for him. And this arrangement continues until the heir comes of age, at the date set by the father. So, In a similar way, Paul says, we are like children while we are under the law. We are not free, but we are enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. Now, what are these elementary principles that Paul speaks of in verse 3, uh, it's, it's a difficult term and there are several ways to understand it. One way is to say that it refers to the law, which reveals basic truths about God and His way. So those are the elementary principles revealed by the law. The law is like the ABCs. It makes, helps us make sense of the world, but it is powerless to save and cannot give us life. Right, so, so that, that could be what the elementary principles refer to. Another interpretation is that these elementary principles are elemental spirits. I think you see that uh, other interpretation in the margin notes of some of your Bibles elemental spirits. So if we, if we understand it that way, elemental spirits, what are they? These elemental spirits are demonic powers that enslave us in idolatry, in false worship, in man-made religion. Right? Paul, Paul speaks about this in verses 8 and 9, in chapter 4. Right? He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So, so those are the, some of the main interpretations for these elementary principles. So It could be the law that enslaves us or it could be idolatry, false worship, man-made religion that enslaves us. Whichever way we interpret elementary principles, the basic point is the same. Once we were not free, we were enslaved. The law had no power to rescue us from slavery to sin or to change our hearts. And we needed to grow up. We can't remain children forever, we need to grow up. But how? How do we grow up and not not be under a guardian anymore? Paul says, God is able and willing to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And the gospel can be summed up in two words, but God, but God. Right? You know, we hear this in various places like Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, but God, Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then here in verse 4, but God sent forth His Son to redeem those who were under the law. So this is how we grow up. This is how we come out from under the guardian. God has sent His Son, Jesus. And this was according to God's sovereign plan and purpose. That's why Paul says, in the fullness of time, according to God's timing, according to God's schedule, neither too early nor too late, but right on time. Now, beloved, this encourages us to patiently wait on God. We can trust Him to keep His saving promises and to make all things right in His time. Paul goes on to say that this Jesus came, sent by God, and he was born of woman. So although he is the eternal son of God, Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh, and he was born like an ordinary child. He was born of the Virgin Mary in a lonely manger. Jesus is not only fully God, but he's also fully man, born of woman. And and Paul could be picking up on that verse in Genesis 3.15, he, promises, well, he says to the serpent, you know, this woman's seed will crush your head. There'll come an offspring born of woman who will crush your head. And I think Paul could be picking up on that verse in Genesis three fifteen. Jesus was born of woman. Jesus was also born under the law. So what does this mean? It means that he perfectly obeyed the law for us. He subjected himself to obey the law. He submitted himself to the law so that his righteousness can be credited to us. So he perfectly obeys the law and he takes the curse of the law on himself so that we can be forgiven, so the penalty for our sins can be paid for. And Jesus, the obedient son, rose from the dead to give us victory over sin and death. And this is how Jesus redeems us from the law. You know, but that's not all. Jesus has set us free and transformed us from slaves to sons. Verse five. He's redeemed us from the law for what purpose? So that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, th- this is amazing grace. You know, it-, it is blessing enough for God to graciously forgive our sins and declare us right in Christ. But that's not enough. There's more. God even adopts us as his beloved children. God didn't just forgive his enemies, he welcomed them into his home. He made them his sons. Yeah, this is amazing grace. It's amazing grace. As G.I. Packer said, <coughs> adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. You know, and, and as those of us who have been adopted by our Heavenly Father, you know, beloved, for those of us who have been adopted by our Heavenly Father, we have the privilege and opportunity to reflect His love and grace, how? Through adopting children. Uh, Adoption, we can practice adoption as a way to testify to how God has adopted us to be His children. uh, Adoption isn't just about married couples who want children or who want more children. Adoption is fundamentally about displaying the gospel. It allows us to join with Christ to care for the helpless. You know, and this may be something that you've, haven't, you've not considered. If you're a married couple, maybe you haven't considered this before. But the, the act of adopting a child testifies to how God has adopted us. Not because we were deserving, but simply because of His grace. It's a wonderful opportunity to display the gospel. So can I, you know, I encourage us, those of us who are married couples, to prayerfully to consider adoption as a way to testify to how God has adopted us to be His beloved children. If you're thinking about adoption, come talk with the elders. We'd love to talk with you and to pray with you as God leads you on this journey. You know, Paul began this section of Galatians by asking, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is obvious. We receive the Spirit only through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in the Son, we are sons. Therefore, God gives us the Spirit. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And we can draw near to God as His children, as sons to our Heavenly Father with this intimate cry, and call out to him for help, Abba, Father. You know, this cry, Abba, Father, this is not a whisper. This is a cry for help. You know, that, that word that Paul uses, cry, Abba, Father, it, it's an urgent plea for help. Abba, Father, help. You know, and this is very telling about our relationship with God, right? You know, I, I have two sons, and you know, whenever they are in trouble, what, what shows that they are related to me? They call, they call out to me for help. Hey, Dad, help. Right? And that shows that cry for help shows that we have a relationship. That cry for help shows that we have a healthy relationship. And they feel that they can turn to me when they need help. Now, obviously, if they don't feel that they can turn to me, they wouldn't call for me. But the fact that they can say, Hey, Dad, help, that shows that we have a relationship. And they trust me and they depend on me. Same thing here. In Galatians 4, if if we know God, if we trust Him, if He if He knows us as His children, then we can cry out to Him for help. You know, not just when times are good, that's why it's not a whisper, of, Oh God, I feel so close to you, Abba, Father. It's not that. It's a cry for help. When we are suffering, when we grieve, we're under the burdens of life. We say, Abba, Father, help that shows that we have a relationship with Him, that this Father is not a stranger to us. And the Spirit shows our sonship. He assures us that we are God's children and the Spirit moves us to boldly call out to God in our pain and in our sorrow. Uh, so times of suffering are very revealing about who we really trust. Times of suffering reveal a lot about the state of our relationship with God. Do we see Him as distant? Do we think that He's only a fair-weathered friend? Or do we cry out to Him? Do we pray to Him in times of suffering? It says a lot about our relationship with God. How are we living as sons? Don't live like orphans. Some of us may have had terrible fathers. Some of us may have grown up without a father. Some of us may have had to put up with absent, indifferent fathers. Some of us may, might feel, even now, the constant need for our earthly father's approval. Our earthly fathers are supposed to reflect our heavenly father, his love, his grace, his compassion. But even if our earthly fathers fail us, even if we fail as earthly fathers, we can trust our faithful Heavenly Father. You now, pastor and hymn writer Henry Light had a wretched father who abandoned him and his, the rest of his family when they were young. So much so that this, this father of Henry Light didn't even allow Henry to call him father but just said, just call me uncle. He refused to take responsibility for Henry and the rest of his family. Yet because of the gospel, Henry Light could know the constant care of a true father. And he wrote in the hymn that we've sung here before, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. He wrote this stanza, I have called thee Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. It's wonderful that whatever our our earthly fathers were like, we have a heavenly father who will never fail us. You know, how deep the Father's love for us that undeserving sinners like us should be called children of God. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So why turn back to self-dependence? Why turn back to self-salvation? Why why are we striving to try to earn God's favour and approval? Don't we know that God already approves of us because we are in Christ? We are no longer slaves, but sons. And the name Jesus gives us is so much better than any name that we could strive for ourselves. In trials and suffering, we do not need to be anxious or afraid. We have a gracious Father who has given us His Son. How will He fail To provide us with all that we need. Beloved, we have diverse individual stories, but in Christ we share this one story. Our Heavenly Father gave His Son that we might be adopted as His sons and be united as brothers and sisters in one family. In Christ we know who we are, we know where we're going. Let's draw near to our Father. In a while, we'll be singing that closing song, Arise, My Soul, Arise, and there's this particular stanza in the song that bears good meditation. My God is reconciled, His pardoning voice I hear, He owns me for His child, I I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that we can come not as strangers, we come not as slaves, but we come as your children. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have lavished upon us through the gospel. We thank you that you have given us your son, so that, so that in him we might become sons. And Father, we praise you for your love. We pray that you would help us to draw near to you, We pray that we would confidently come and rest in your care and your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.